Hi everybody. Welcome back to Childhood History and Critique. I'm Pat Ryan and this time I have a conversation with Ronald Neeson, who is Catherine A. Pearson Chair of Civil Society and Public Policy in the Faculty of Law and Arts at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec. Ron is an anthropologist of law and politics and the author of too many works to list in this setting. I called upon him to discuss his excellent 213 Truth and Indignation, Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission on Indian Residential Schools from the University of Toronto Press. This book is important for us for two reasons, I think. It is about, one, the making of historical consciousness and the making of it through the world's first TRC devoted to state crimes against children as a group. We recorded our conversation in February 2016, and it has been divided into three 20-minute parts. This is heavy stuff, but I think you will find it compelling. Take care. Good morning. How are you, Patrick? I'm good. Ron, thanks for uh, joining Childhood History and Critique. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about about yourself, about your intellectual journey, and what brought you to write Truth and Indignation. Well, I have a long re- postgraduate research trajectory in working with Aboriginal people in the North, for one thing. I was trained as an Africanist. I did work in in northern Mali, but then... As a young person looking for work, I um, I got a job with the Cree Board of Health and Social Services of James Bay, and that started a totally different uh, line of work that I then developed over several decades. I worked with the James Bay Crees. I lived for two years in a reserve community in northern Manitoba that had had a residential school, so I was hearing a lot about residential schools. And then an opportunity arose um, through a through a research assistant, Marie-Pierre Gadoa, who had connections to the Jesuit, to, to the uh, Oblate community through her father. And I was introduced to some Oblates in the, uh, just to, before the TRC began its work, who were part of the um, uh, compensation regime that was part of the settlement agreement of 2007 and had, uh, shall we say, very distinct opinions about the, their experience of compensation and their ideas of the commission. Mm-hmm. And so I continued to do interviews with them through the work of the commission up until the time in, that I pub- published uh, Truth and Indignation. As a legal anthropologist, I would... I would call this uh, a uh, an institutional ethnography. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. took place over multiple settings. One of the f- things that I found gripping about it is it gave me a window into something that, of course, was in the news, but right. I had not been able to attend myself. Right, and it gave me a, a sense of how knowledge was being produced, in a right. sense. Uh, yes in a way that was opaque in terms of the mass media coverage. Right. In, in a sense that a lifting of the veil, if you will, to people who hadn't had the uh, either chosen to or had the opportunity to see the 
commissions firsthand. The events of the commission were held in several different locations across Canada. Right. Perhaps we could back up for the listeners, and if I could ask you to talk a little bit about the historical context, uh, Canada's residential school project, which is not unique. There are residential school projects of a similar nature all over the world, certainly very common in the um, colonial world and the English-speaking world in general. Uh, uh, but including there are residential projects in England and in Ireland and other other places uh, because it's part of a larger educational project. So Canada's residential school project was inspired largely by the American one, Mm -hmm. where they're referred to as boarding, Indian boarding schools. Indian boarding schools, yes. Um, and this was uh, an outcome of the sort of westward expansion, displacement, defeat in war. What do we do with these people? And then, mm-hmm. and then there was this idea of uh, assimilating them through uh, through boarding schools. Mm-hmm. And Canada imitated that model. Um, they saw it as being having potential for resolving the so-called Indian question. Yeah. Um, but they did it differently. They did it through churches. Um, they they engaged the various churches to undertake the the operation of the schools. So the government, the federal government, was centrally responsible for some hundred and forty residential schools through Canadian history. There were two in operation at the time of Canadian Confederation in 1867. Mm-hmm. There were about a hundred and uh, over a hundred and hundred thousand students who went to these schools. Um, there are some eighty-six thousand students, former residential school students, who are alive today. Yeah. With yeah. a number, of course, that is continually dropping since the last of these schools closed in the mid nineteen nineties. So mm-hmm. the heyday of these schools was in the post-war period. Um, and then they began to come into question through, through, uh, uh, the whole s- civil rights and awareness, um, the empowerment of the, some of the residential school students. In the early 60s. This began, uh, uh, in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, to, gained momentum in the 70s. And it's by the, um, 1990s that we have this resistance taking form in lawsuits. Yes. So they empowered themselves through the courts. And they were uh, victorious in many of these cases. They went after some of the worst uh, um, pedophile priests mm-hmm. and won. And, and let's, w- let's, let's talk about that timeline of the development of the critique a little bit so people can set it. Now, you can add and correct to the degree that I don't have it... Uh, uh, precise. Right. I'll try to do it from memory. Yeah. But but from 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 my memory, and by the way, the the CBC online has a part of the site for the listeners that gives you a lot of primary material, so you can right. listen and watch the materials throughout time. So not just in the present, what's being critiqued and produced, but from from actually the promotional videos uh, in the fifties. Right. Um, but what I noticed in the character of the audio on the CBC radio of critique was the initial critique was language loss. Right. The initial critique is largely cultural assimilation. Right. 
and that that continues to be a sure. dominant theme. But it's the uh, it's the what you will pick up on first in the '60s and perhaps early '70s. Right. And then what gets introduced um, in the '70s and in the '80s, and this follows general changes in critiques of how children are being treated. Right. You get violence, yes. questions of corporal punishment, mistreatment, uh, emotional abuse, and then in the '80s. And the 90s, that switches to cases of more extreme cases of really grotesque physical abuse and sexual abuse. That's right. Becomes the center of the critique um, and really drives, I think, the litigation. Is that correct? Exactly. And, could, I mean, it's hard to litigate about cultural transformation. Attempts were made to do so, um, but unsuccessfully. And, but it's, in fact, violent crime, particularly sexual violence against children, there is st- strong legal grounds to seek compensation. Yes, that was legible by by the judicial system. They could understand that and go after it. Yeah. And they did prosecute it vigorously so that by the early 2000s, there were there were literally thousands of successful cases building one upon the other that threatened to bankrupt the the churches and that were hugely costly in terms of uh, in many ways for the for the federal government as well yeah and and that so that about 2004 5 they start seeking settlement a class right. action settlement to cover most of the litiga- litigants right so a massive class action suit was filed by the Assembly of First Nations. Uh, and that led to the um, settlement agreement. Of It was uh, finalized in 2006 and came into effect in 2007. And, and, and in terms of the settlement, there were two, two, two sides of it. One is a general settlement uh, that follows years that you were in residence. Right. Uh, a $10,000 for one year, if I'm remembering correctly. Right. It was called a common experience payment. So it was $10,000 for one year that you could prove that you were in a residential school, a recognized residential school. Regardless of experience. Regardless of experience and $3,000 for subsequent experience. So the average payout for those um, common experience claims, CEP claims, was about $20,000 per person. And then... There was another part of the the uh, the uh, compensation right. was based on specific cases of violent abuse and sexual abuse. Right. So this was a separate stream that was called the independent assessment process. Yeah. And there was a whole structure built around that. Uh, and we're not to the end of that yet, are we? Or would you, did we just? We're not quite to the end of that. There was a, de- a deadline that passed. I don't remember what it was for filing a claim, and there may still be claims that are being adjudicated. Yeah. Um, and the average payout for those is a little more than a hundred thousand dollars, and there have been multiple billions of dollars paid out in compensation through both of these regimes. And the the uh, payments are coming from the Canadian. Federal government. From the federal government. And the total amounts, and just providing that context, people understand the significance of what we're talking about. If I'm remembering correctly, it's about, I'm not sure, the total package, about $5 billion. Right. About three, uh, three, three, and a, 
Three and a half billion for the first part? Uh, no, less. less 1.8 billion for the first part. Right. And three and a half for the... For the, for the, for the adjudication of harms, yeah? Yeah, of harms. Okay. And, um, and this is two individuals. Payments right. to individuals seems like a significant policy element. Right. And it does not address his, uh, historic underfunding, other things that are important parts of, uh, parallel dialogues. No, that's right. Yeah, and, and, and questions of structural development and, so all of, water those, and, all of those questions of addressing Canadian history, addressing assimilation policy, or what the commission referred to in its report as cultural genocide, which is something that they wanted to um, uh, an, uh, that they wanted to press from from the beginning. Um, those were pushed off to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That's part of the settlement agreement. Folks now have a sense, a little bit of sense about your larger background as a legal anthropologist and, and experience uh, living and, and studying um, uh, First Nations communities here in Canada. And then uh, a sense of the residential school project, the, the, the litigation settlement structure. But I'd like now to draw attention to, to your book, to Truth in Indignation. So the... The questions of the book start from the methodological premise and opportunity. Where a lot of people studying the law want to know is how the insights of, of anthropology, ethnography, of social science research can make the law more effective, right? How do we use this information to improve the way the law is applied? Mm-hmm. So I should begin by saying that my approach is a little bit different in that I'm more interested in looking first at what the law is doing, right? So what do our legal structures do? So in the book, I begin with sketching out, of course, the methodology, the problem, the residential schools, and so on. But I'm interested in beginning with the mandate of the commission as one of the one of the ways that knowledge becomes structured mm-hmm. so how is it that the powers that are given the commission have an influence on the knowledge that the commission produces and that become part of the of its work in creating a new narrative of the state and and when we look at the commission we see that the people who negotiated it, negotiated it, arrived at something very particular, very, in a sense, unusual for truth commissions. As someone who studies children and childhood knows a lot about education and and, and those institutions and residential institutions for children, but what I didn't know very much about was truth and reconciliation commissions. Yeah, the features that are very specific to it are... Uh, I think an intentional victim centrism. There was an idea at the outset when the powers of the TRC were negotiated that this needed to be an opportunity for residential school survivors to tell their story, what these residential schools were and the harms they had produced to the people who were subject to those harms. And it was the only one in the world where children and children's victimization was the central issue. The central figure 
was children and school children. We have we have child soldiers in TRCs like Sierra Leone, um, but we don't have a TRC where the harm of the state is directed towards children as the objects of the powers of the state. Families are seen as being victimized too. The, the communities that are emptied of children are a part of the story. And, and actually that's one of the interesting findings, at least from my own reading, and this is maybe something I'm injecting into your study, but it seems to me that parental rights are at least as important as any independent notion of children's rights in Canadian law. I mean, right. Children's rights to participation, self-determination, uh, as one writer put it, is, you know, a sort of Bambi compared to the Godzilla of, of parental rights. Exactly so, yeah. What are some of the other characteristics that make Canada's TRC distinct? It, it, cannot, it cannot conduct judicial hearings. It has no... It has no subpoena powers. It can't compel people to give testimony. Yeah, it's it's constructed and it uses this word in the mandate as a as a voluntary process. Everybody who appears has to be there as somebody who's w- wanting to give testimony. More more than that, it cannot accept any from from people who give testimony. It cannot have them. It cannot allow them. And they were often reminded to give the names of people who were accused of committing crimes who had not already been prosecuted. There was no naming names in the commission. Sometimes sometimes people who were giving testimony, on a few occasions I was there, and they just defied this and said, so-and-so did this to me, and you can do what you want. Yeah. They yeah. didn't like it. It's, uh, it's almost like medical confidentiality superseded that you are named publicly in a criminal case and that 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 has to be posted right you know and that that we have free access to that information it's as if they're following the principle of non-disclosure around age but what's interesting here of course is that children themselves aren't testifying at all and the ones not being named but the accused perpetrators the accused perpetrators are not being named named either Right, but I think this legal setting, what was what was basically at work here, that also had those implications, was that the TRC was not to be at all a judicial process, period, in in any way, shape, or form. People sometimes misunderstood that. You know, they'd come to the microphone yeah. with their supports, and they would ad- address Justice Sinclair as Your Honor. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Uh, and I didn't didn't mention that in the book, but it's no, something. Yeah, that but that makes sense given the other the history of the TRCs in other places. You've been listening to the first of a three-part conversation with Ronald Neeson, recorded February 2016. For childhood history and critique, the second and third parts can be found on the website of the Society for the History of Children and Youth.